Well, hey, I'm thankful for those of you that no matter what the weather is like or what day it is on the calendar, you are interested in studying the Word of God. Amen? Amen. All right, you guys can open up to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, and we're going to be in verse 7. What is it to be gifted? Even more specifically, do you know what your gifts are? Some of you may have an immediate answer in your mind. You know yourself and your gifts so well that you can state them clearly no matter who asks or in what situation. Others of you may be wondering, do I even have any gifts? I was was amazed at how many people in their membership conversations said, I don't even know if I have gifts. Still others of you may react like many American Christians, wondering if it is even a good thing to think about your gifts as that may not be humble enough, right? We can look and see that the world looks to things like intelligence, business acumen, musical talent, athletic ability to identify individuals who are gifted. As Christians, we want to say that we're different, but we have to admit that we often do the same thing, don't we? Entire genres of books and workbooks, websites, and even specialty consultants and specialty retreats have been created around the topic of helping people find their spiritual gifts. It's a big thing in Christendom. There's even an entire group of Christians that classify themselves as charismatic. How many of you have heard that word before, charismatic? Okay, most people? Yeah, okay, charismatic. (laughs) Hallelujah. Preach on, brother. Okay? It means, as we will see later, that 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 group of, of Christians, their highest concern is spiritual or miraculous gifts as proof of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, with so many opinions abounding about this topic, there is a cacophony of information that just lays over the top of us. Uh, I'm really thankful that by the Lord's sovereignty of bringing us to this passage this morning and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, he's given us and seen fit to give us a text that will help us understand gifts. And as we progress through it, my prayer is that we as a body would become wiser when it comes to this topic and that each of us as individuals would be able to rightly discern what gifts truly are, right? How many of you get super, super awkward when people start talking about the idea of the miraculous gifts. Anybody? Yeah, I've met a lot of Christians who the second somebody starts talking about the miraculous gifts, healings, tongues, it's kind of like you've just entered a debate between a Republican and a Democrat, and you just want to be the independent, right? (laughs) In so doing, I believe that we will see what the Lord calls us to do in properly, properly utilizing our gifts. And my hope for us is that we'll see and understand as we go through chapter four what we are if we are a truly charismatic church. I want our church, just so you know, to be a truly charismatic church. That is the desire of us as leadership. We want to be a charismatic church. Now, for some of you, you might go, wait a minute, uh, this wasn't what I bought into at this church. I I didn't know the church was charismatic because there's so much baggage attached to it. When people ask me where I am on the spectrum, am am I a cessationist? Do I believe that all the, the miraculous gifts have ceased? Or am I a person who believes that they're continued, a continuationist? I kind of go, well, I'm not even on that spectrum. That's not how I look at the Spirit. And hopefully I'll be able to take you through why I say that today and in coming weeks. When we read the Word, we always need to be careful to read within what? What do we read within? Context. Awesome. Seven years, it's kicking in. Context. And so we begin our study this morning by looking at what Paul's been discussing thus far. Chapters 1 through 3, he was discussing orthodoxy, the right doctrine of God's work. And God's work was enthroning Jesus far above all power and authority. 
And by Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus has paid the price for the sins of mankind, and he's created a way for his chosen people to step into right relationship with him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that good news this morning? The greatest gift that Christ has given us is that of redemption and salvation. Amen? So when we talk about gifts, that needs to be the first and foremost thing in our mind. What a gracious gift that Christ has given us by redeeming us and bringing us into his kingdom. And at the heart of the transformation and regeneration of our lives is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings us into the family of Christ, regenerates us to the point where we actually kind of want to start doing what Jesus calls us to do. And slowly but surely, we get transformed into his image. And Paul has been praying in chapter 3 and into chapter 4 that the church at Ephesus needs the Holy Spirit for this transformation to occur. We can't do it by ourselves. And at the same time, Paul has also made clear where the Holy Spirit dwells. It dwells within each one of us. And where does the Spirit dwell? Church say where it dwells? In the church. Collectively, he dwells within the heart of the church body. And the body of believers that have been called out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, we are the called out ones, the ecclesia, the church. And when we're called into this body, we're called to be united with Christ and his people. And this was the message we looked at last week, verses 1 through 6, that we are called into the unity of the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully, church. Those who are of the Holy Spirit are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And even though we are welcomed by the Spirit into the worldwide church, each local body of believers is itself a manifestation of the work of the Spirit. Now, guys, why on earth do I keep harping on this? Why on earth for the last year have I shared this over and over and over again? Because I believe it was Paul's evangelistic method. The church was Paul's evangelistic method. Paul was going into areas unreached by the gospel. He proclaimed the good news that Jesus, eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, became a man, witnessed to the world of the heart of the Father, and showed us the work of the kingdom. Then he was crucified as an innocent sacrifice, taking upon the cross the punishment for my sin and for yours. And then he rose three days later, was seen by many witnesses and ascended into heaven to take his rightful throne as king over his kingdom. We must repeat that to ourselves every day. That's why we're here. That's what we do, why we do what we do. And after Paul would preach this, because he lifted up Jesus, men and women would be drawn to the gospel. And Paul would then have those men and women establish a local assembly, a church, And that church would then have the same mission in that locale that Jesus did in Galilee, to spread the news. 1 John 4.17 says, As Jesus is, so also are we in this world. Jesus is not physically here anymore. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he sent his Holy Spirit into the church that we might be the body, the living, breathing body of Christ in the world, doing the same thing that Jesus did. And so Paul knew that to effectively evangelize an area, he needed to have the church grow in unity. We say that we're Christians, right? Whoa, hold on. Let's let's roll back here. Let's start with something basic this morning. We say that we're Christians, right? Christians believe the Bible, right? What does the Bible say is the sign of someone who follows him? Well, first it says that there's unity. 
Look at John 17, 22 through 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Does that sound familiar? That's what we were in, in Ephesians 4 last week. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What was it that showed that we were disciples? Unity. Unity. John 13, what does it say? It says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It was by the church's unity and by their love for one another. Now, we are amazing as Christians. We are like the only demographic on the planet that likes to think about things but never do them. We think we can be unified and loving without actually practically being unified and being loving. I love the idea of love. Who loves love? Raise your hand. I love the idea of love. But do we actually play it out? I love the idea of being unified. How how many people love the idea of being unified? But do we actually play it out? These were to be the things that the church showed the world practically. These small bodies of 50 to 100 people were the incarnate body of Christ to the community around them, just as we are. And from this vantage point, Paul now steps from looking at the one body of Christ to the individuals within it. As we'll look at in the coming weeks, whenever the body is talked about in Scripture, he talks about the global body, but also he, he then narrows it down into the local body. Because guys, can Salem see Marcel Yanogo and the Temple Philadelphia in the middle of Burkina Faso? No. Are they part of the body of Christ? Yes. But what we have to realize is we have to realize that what Salem needs to see is us because we're the local body. To become too focused on the individuals without seeing the body is not to see the forest for the trees. But Paul also wants to make sure that we don't focus so much on the body that we miss the individual. And so he's going to step into this section now talking about what each local body should be. And he's talking to the church at Ephesus. He's going to talk about the unity of the one body, but the diversity of the individuals within. Now in our individualistic culture, I think it right that we have spent such a long stretch focusing on the unity of the body. But to move the focus completely onto the individual is not actually what Paul does here. We must see both the individual and the body together. And so now Paul is going to move from that unity of the body to the individual gifts within the body, from unity to diversity. And I believe we're going to be a bit surprised as he does this, especially as we see what he's writing through his Jewish eyes. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be discussing uh, this section of text that I'm going to go over today. And we're going to look at four main points, and here they are. You can write these down to kind of give yourself a little bit of breadcrumbs as we go through it, because this is very confusing stuff if you just read right over it. The first thing that we're going to look at today is the source of the gifts is the ascended Christ. Paul's going to be talking about the gifts that were given to the church. He's going to be talking about the source of the gifts being the ascended Christ. The second thing that we're going to see, and we'll hit on this this morning, but we'll also continue it the next time I teach. Secondly, the content of the gifts is one another. And this is where often people get really confused because the church is upside down trying to tell you what your specific talent is and gift is. And in my opinion, they miss the point when they do that. That is a piece of it, but it's not the point of any of the statements on gifts. And I'll show you why. So secondly, the content of the gifts is one another. The third thing we're going to see is that the purpose of the gifts is to serve the body toward unity. It's to serve one another toward a unified body of believers. 
And lastly, the fulfillment of the gifts is a covenant community reflecting Christ. This morning, we will cover the first two points with the rest coming later. And in the midst of this, I believe that you will each be granted the freedom to finally be who Christ desires you to be within his kingdom. You're going to have tons of freedom to finally say, I know what my role is within the body of Christ. You'll be able to fulfill your place in his family. So that's the plan over the next couple times I teach. Today we'll hit one and two. Does that sound like a plan? Yeah? You guys want to know about the, the gifts, the, the charisma or the charismata, okay, as we'll talk about? Um, this is what it is to be a charismatic church. And so let's look at chapter 4, verse 7, and I'm going to read through 16, even though we're only couple, uh, covering the first couple of verses this morning, but this will give us an understanding. Remember that verses 1 through 6, we're just talking about unity and that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If we're Christians, we will do so. And then it says in verse 7, everybody look there with me in Ephesians 4, 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Anybody confused yet? Yeah, this is like a bad who's on first joke, right? Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ." from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Man, this is a powerful section of scripture, guys. You're going to see that Paul is putting so much in here in shorthand. And what I want to do is I want to break it apart so that we as Western American Christians understand it. The first thing I want us to see this morning, you can write this down, is that the source of the gifts is the victorious Christ. That was point number one I gave you a minute ago. The source of the gifts is the victorious Christ. At the core of this short text is a quote that Paul pulls from the Old Testament. In many of your Bibles, it's broken apart there. There's space around it. It's indented. You might have a a uh, cross-reference footnote there. To understand what he's trying to convey to the New Testament church of Ephesus, we have to understand what Paul is trying to reference here. Guys, whenever you're reading your Bible and there's something referenced out, uh, out of the Old Testament, pause and go read it. Because unlike us who like to take certain verses out of context and use them as life verses, the Jews did the exact opposite. They would use verses as the thing to move your eyes to the greater text from which it was pulled from so that you understand the fullness of that context. Okay? So the first question I have for you here is, is uh, that... Are any of you confused by all this ascending, descending, and taking a host of captives? And how many of you are confused as to what this has to do with gifts of the Spirit? Yeah? Okay, good. All right, so you're not, you're, you're not the only ones. I, I'm confused as well, and we'll break it apart here. All of this statement, and we have to understand this, is warfare language. 
Guys, I, I don't mean this to be mean, but our culture of Christianity in the United States assists us in not seeing the Bible. When you read uh, certain Christian books and you sit and you listen to Caleb all day and all you hear is a message that the Bible is about positive and encouraging, you actually are getting barriers put in front of you and covers over your eyes to actually read this book. Here's why. This book is about war. It's about a conquering king who saw us oppressed by his enemy and desired to save us. When you read the Bible, you get confused because you're told, well, it's supposed to be positive and encouraging and make you feel fluffy and light. But when you read it, you go, wait a minute, there's blood and guts and people are getting their throats slit. What is this about? The Bible's about warfare. And these verses here are about Jesus going to war for us. Paul is referencing a psalm here from which he is trying to draw the mind of the hearer to the warfare language of that psalm. Remember that Paul was a Pharisee by background, and the Pharisees were a special class of academics tasked with keeping the law and helping cleanse Israel of sin. And Paul was so zealous for the law of God that he even went to the links to try and kill Christians because he thought that they were going against the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament by heart. Now, the way that the Pharisees and the rabbis would teach with reference to the Old Testament is, as I said, they'd speak a certain verse and they'd call your mind to the greater context of that verse. And so when Paul is speaking about ascending on high and leading a host of captives, we have to ask, what is he talking about? He's talking about warfare. He's talking about battle. In the ancient Near East, a king would conquer a people and drag them back in chains as captives. There was none of this, no collateral damage, we got to call up Washington, D.C. and get the lawyers on the line and see if we can kill someone. It was literally, let's go in, take everybody, put a hook in their nose, link them up the chains, and drag them back naked into our kingdom so that they could be slaves. Now, immediately, all of our political correct ideas go nuts, and we're like, hooks in the nose, chains, naked, prisoners, what? Are we talking about the Bible here? Yeah, we're absolutely talking about the Bible. Remember, this was written in ancient Near East context. And so when they would do this, they would also take their troops in and they would plunder the treasures of the people that they conquered and bring those treasures back and put them in their temple to their gods. Some of you might remember the Old Testament story of uh, the Philistines stealing the Ark of the Covenant and taking it back to the temple of Dagon, their god, right? That's what they would do with their treasures. They would do it in order to build up the treasure of their temple. Here's an example from uh, history. This is, it's kind of hard to see, but this is the Arch of Titus. If you go to Rome, you will find the Arch of Titus, and on the inside, you will see this laid out. What this is, is this is Roman soldiers bringing back all of the gold from the Temple of Jerusalem when they sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. You can see the menorah there, the the candlestick uh, that they would have in the temple. And so they would sack the people, they would drag them back as servants, they would plunder all the goods and bring them back to build up their temple. Everybody got that? That's the context we're talking about here today. All right? Great Mother's Day sermon. This is absolutely what I wanted moms to hear today. Now this gives us some really good background to Paul's statement about ascending on high and leading a host of captives. Understanding this mentality of warfare will help us as we step into the psalm that he's referencing from. So let's all turn to Psalm 68, and we'll start to see a little bit deeper what he's talking about. Go to Psalm 68. I know you moms feel like you're in warfare 
halfway through most days. So this is a good psalm for you. Psalm 68. And we're not going to read all of it just for the sake of time. But we could spend weeks plumbing the depths of this one psalm. We're going to simply hit some of the high points. Look at Psalm 68, verses 1 through 3 with me. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so shall you drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Positive encouraging. (laughs) See what I mean, guys? You get blinded to the truth of what Scripture is saying. Okay? What is this talking about? It's talking about war. It's talking about God at war on behalf of his people. This is about God arising and conquering his enemies and in so doing, bringing hope and exaltation to his people, the righteous. See, this is how you know somebody who is either a carnal Christian or not a Christian at all versus someone who's a Christian. A Christian is on their knees regularly saying, God, conquer the enemy. Do you not see the oppression around us? Do you not see people hurt and wounded? Do you not see victims? Do you not see the wicked rising up? God, come and destroy your enemies. That's what a Christian does. Hans, that doesn't seem very loving. No, that's absolutely loving because God is on the side of the oppressed. A Christian who is a carnal Christian or not a Christian at all, just in name only, is a person who's totally content in this world. The wicked get ahead, so I'm just going to jump in the game too. See, what the righteous call for is they call for God to come and to conquer his enemies. Now, throughout the psalm, David interweaves two storylines. First, he speaks about Yahweh, the God of Israel, conquering the gods of Egypt so that he can deliver his people out of Egypt during the Exodus. Do you guys remember all the plagues, right, from Sunday school? How many of you remember the plagues from Exodus, right? Yell some of them out. You remember some of them? Frogs. Did you know that there was an Egyptian frog god? And so the plague of the frogs was in direct combat against the god of frogs. What's another one? Locusts. Ah, that's a good one. Again, cows, right? The cows are all dying because of the flies. All of these are direct combat tactics against certain gods of Egypt. Turning the Nile into blood. The Nile was the symbol of the fertility god that ran the Nile. To turn it into blood is to make it weak. It's not useful anymore. All of those plagues were God at war against idolatrous, the idolatrous gods of Egypt. Yahweh was fighting against them on behalf of his people to free them from oppression. He was conquering his enemies. And this is throughout this psalm. If you have time to read it, uh, you can read it this week on your own. You'll see him talking about rising up and flying through the wilderness and taking his people with him. But the second storyline is that after conquering his enemies, Yahweh takes his rightful place on the throne of his temple in his sanctuary. Look at Psalm 68, verse 24. Just this one verse. You can read through it on your own this week if you want. It's talking about a procession leading their king into the sanctuary. Verse 24, your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my king, into the sanctuary. And he's surrounded by uh, ministers of music raising him up and praising him. This is God taking place, his place in his temple, on his throne. And then look at verses 28 through 29. 28 through 29. 
Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. This is a statement of kings that are conquered will bring tribute to the conquering king. They will literally come and give their treasures to Yahweh because he has conquered them. This is all warfare. Can you guys see that here? Can you see the warfare language in the midst of the psalm? Can you see that that's the context that Paul is trying to pull in to Ephesians 4? And at the center of all this is verse 18. It's the dead center of the entire chapter. Verse 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. Ascended on high means he took the throne as the highest authority in the land, as the conquering king. Leading a host of captives in your train. This isn't a choo-choo train. This is the robe that flows off the, uh, the um, uh, royal garments, so to speak. He is the conquering king who takes captive the conquered peoples, like we talked about, hooks in the nose and chains, and brings them to his kingdom to be his servants. You'll notice that Paul uses the phrase prisoner often. That's not just because he was a prisoner in jail while, while writing the letter. He was also a prisoner on behalf of Jesus. He also uses the phrase bondservant or slave. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. We flip out when we hear that because of our horrendous history of slavery in this country. But we have been taken captive. We have been conquered and brought out of the kingdom of darkness. It says receiving gifts among men. It was normal for conquering kings to receive tribute from those that they conquered, even from the most rebellious that fought against their capture. And then lastly, it says that the Lord specifically... Yahweh Elohim, that's what Lord God there in the big caps means, may dwell there. Now this is where it's kind of odd. Why is this there? That the Lord may dwell in his temple? What does this have to do with receiving gifts? Well, guys, you might remember from Ephesians, something might jump up in your mind. This is saying in verse 18 that the king will go and he will dwell in the midst of his temple. Remember anything from Ephesians chapter 2 that speaks anything like that? Where does the conquering king, Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, dwell in his temple? Where is that? It's the church. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is speaking to the Gentiles who've been grafted in with the Jews to make up the church, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The triune God by his Holy Spirit dwells within the temple of the church, collectively worldwide and individually within each local body. What are the building blocks of each local body and each local temple? Church, tell me, what are the building blocks of each temple? God's people. We are. Remember that? Remember how when we went through chapter two, you each are living stones being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit? Well, go back with me to to Ephesians chapter four, and let's start to put some of this together. I'm starting to get glazed looks. So we'll put it all together here for you. If you're lost, it's okay. I'll bring it back for you. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to look at the section we just covered. Look at verse 9 with me. We'll start with the most confusing spot. 
We'll start with the who's on first statement. Now, we're in good company because Peter, in one of his letters, said, yeah, some of that stuff Paul says is hard to understand, and that's why it's taken us a while to unpack here. But look at verse 9 of chapter 4 in Ephesians. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Now, some of your translations are going to say the lower regions of the earth. There is debate on that. I totally disagree with that translation. I like this translation. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul is here speaking in shorthand of the work of Jesus. Jesus was eternal with the Father. He was sent as the Messiah to earth to go to war against the kingdom of darkness. Let me say that again. Jesus was sent to the earth to go to war against the kingdom of darkness. Hans, I thought that Jesus was sent to the earth to die for me because he loved me so much. Guys, that's a side effect of the greater mission of God to destroy the works of darkness. That is true. He loves you so much that he came to die for you. Yes, but that wasn't his whole point. That would be to give us a self-centered, selfish gospel where the world circulates around us. We follow a king where the universe circulates around him. Amen? And so he came to bring this war against the kingdom of darkness. He descended from heaven, the higher regions, into the lower regions, the earth, from heaven. And then his ministry was an act of war. With every healing, with every assistance to the oppressed, with every feeding of the hungry, Jesus was waging warfare against the enemy of God who came to lie, kill, steal, and destroy. And when he went to the cross, Jesus was coming to destroy the, strang- the stranglehold of sin and death and hell over all of us. And his resurrection was proof that this victory occurred. And 40 days later, Jesus ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, reigning over all spiritual authorities and powers in his inaugurated kingdom. Jesus, in coming to earth, invaded the kingdom of darkness, conquering sin and death, and has plundered those that are his and taken them captive back to his kingdom, the kingdom of light. Let me say that again, guys. Jesus invaded the enemy territory. He plundered the treasure of the enemy. And he took them captive with him back to his kingdom of light. Who's that talking about? It's talking about us. This is why Ephesians 1 spoke of Jesus being enthroned above all authorities and powers and filling the church. This is why Ephesians 2 spoke of Jesus saving us out of the kingdom of darkness. For us to understand Paul, we must be fully engaged in kingdom and warfare language with Jesus at war as the conquering king. And so in Ephesians 4.8, since 4.9 tells us who he's speaking to, we know who the he is. Look at Ephesians 4.8. Therefore it says, when he, who's that? Jesus. Ascended on high, he, who's that? led a host of captives, and he, who's that? Gave gifts to men. Now, interestingly, this is a different wording than in Psalm 68, 18. Read it again with me and notice the bold up on the screen. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. Why would Paul change it to gave gifts to men? What was common for a conquering king to receive gifts as tribute from his conquered enemies, and then who would he give those gifts to? His people. 
He would give them to his people as a sign that they were part of his kingdom. And so Paul takes the received gifts of Psalm 68 as the conquering king and changes it to gives because Jesus then took what he plundered and gave it to his people. Wait a minute, that's confusing, Hans. I thought you just said what he plundered was us, and so he's taking us and giving us gifts to who? To us. The gifts God is talking about in the Bible is you, not your talents, not if you have empathy or if you're really good at the guitar or if you're good at teaching. Yes, that's part of the gifts. The gifts is you. He plundered you from the kingdom of darkness. Amen? Amen. He took you captive in his love and his mercy and his grace. And he brought you into the inaugurated kingdom of light that's not fully here yet, but we look forward to it. But we know it's begun. And he handed you as his plundered treasure to the very people he loved, which are his plundered treasure. Now you understand why Peter goes, man, that Paul, his stuff is hard to understand. (laughs) Amen, Peter. This is where it all comes together. The very plunder that Jesus took out of the kingdom of darkness is that which he gives to each one of us by his grace. He gives us each other with all our personalities, our talents, our minds, and our hearts. In my estimation, if we separate the topic of spiritual gifts from the enthronement of Christ and the warfare in which the spirit indwells the body of Christ and the warfare that we are currently engaged in, because that's the whole point of giving the gifts, if we separate these things apart, we have missed the point of what the Bible talks about with gifts. To separate my gifting and to focus on the gifts without remembering why or how they are given makes us more concerned with ourselves and our talent or our gifts and how we're special over and above Christ and the story of his conquering victory. His victory on the cross and his present work of waging warfare through the church. To separate the two is to miss the entire point. Paul wants us to realize that Christ and Christ alone is the giver of good gifts to the church. And it's only by his grace, by his contra-conditional love, only by his selflessness. And it comes from his desire to reflect the good father God who gives good gifts to his children. It's out of love for his bride, the church, and it is for the purpose that we might wage the good warfare against the kingdom of darkness wherever we exist. There's a much broader picture going on when we talk about spiritual gifts. The foundation of any understanding of spiritual or miraculous gifts must begin with the gracious love of Jesus and the power of his victorious resurrection. As the ascended king, he has rescued us and given us one another out of his love for us and his desire for the church to flourish. Church, do we thank God for his indescribable gifts? I know we do for salvation. Do we thank God for his indescribable gifts? Remember what we just talked about gifts being. The content of the gifts is one another. It's your next point. The content of the gifts is one another. Do we thank God for his indescribable gifts? I think Mother's Day is a complete and utter failure. 
How on earth can we take one 24-hour period and wedge into it all the thanks and honor that moms deserve? It's worthless. It's impossible. There's no way. No amount of flowers, no amount of candy, no amount of food, no amount of relaxation can tell the moms in this room and around the world how wonderful they are. Why do we honor them? Well, we honor them because they're gifts to us. We honor them because, man, my wife is a gift to me in the way that she loves our children and raises them up in the way of the Lord. She's a gift. And I'll tell you, I often thank God for his indescribable gift of my wife. But other times when I'm being selfish old me, I seem to curse God for my wife. All the rest of you spouses are like, oh, that never happens to me. I never do that. (laughs) Just wait until you get an argument. I guarantee there are times she's cursed God for his indescribable gift of me to her, right? The reality is, is that when we lose sight of the fact that we are gifts to one another, we completely miss the point. And one of the sad things about only one day to honor moms is, are they really only worth one day? We should be honoring them 365 days. We should be honoring the single women in this church who give their lives to help run our kids' ministry and care for our our kids when we need a break. We should be thankful every day for the fathers in this room. We should be thankful every day for the single men in this room who give their lives. We should be thankful for one another. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It's funny to me that we want salvation so bad, but when we show up in heaven, guess what will be there as our gift and inheritance? Each other. And yet we don't look at it this way on the earth. Paul's not here speaking of the greatest gift that Christ has given, the gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Without that gift, guys, we would be languishing in the kingdom of darkness. Please don't hear me as saying that one another is more important than salvation. But here, specifically here, Paul is speaking of something different. Just as a conquering king would take the plunder home and fill his God's temple with it, Yahweh now uses the plunder from the kingdom of darkness to build the very temple in which his Holy Spirit dwells, the church. Go back and reread Exodus. Three times in Exodus, it talks about the Israelites plundering treasures from Egypt. And then at the end of Exodus, what do they do with it? They build the tabernacle. Jesus did the same thing with us. He plundered us from the kingdom of darkness. And chapter 2 of Ephesians tells us that he's building his temple out of the very plunder that he pulled from the kingdom of darkness. And within that temple, he desires to use each person in their appropriate place. He will not use the capstone as a cornerstone, and he will not use the cornerstone as a capstone. And what is even more amazing about this metaphor is that you can only know your role based on both your individual fit, but also by the other people with which you are being built together in the temple. Did you hear me there? You can only know your gifting as it works with the other giftings in the church. This is why I don't understand when people go and they try and figure out their own gift and then they just kind of hop from church to church going, I'm the so-and-so person. I'm the IJM person. I'm the empathy person. I get nervous when we talk about what gifts I have over and above what gifts other people have. Guys, it seems to me that if I am in Tim Keller's church or John MacArthur's church, I would probably not hold as high of a position of teaching as I do in this church. Would you agree with me? I would want to sit and listen to Tim Keller teach. I don't know about you. Does that mean I don't have the gift of teaching? Absolutely not. I obviously do, but it has to do with both my ability and personality just as much as it has to do with those with whom I am called to serve within my local body. 
But what we've done is we've turned the church into our version, this Christian version of American Idol. But my mommy always told me that I was really good at this spiritual gift. And then the poor judges have to sit back and say, I'm sorry, honey. No, you're not. Right? The reality is, is that our gifts only work in coordination with other gifts within the body. It has to do with their ability and my ability in what I'm called to serve or how I'm called to serve within my local body. Now look at the next two verses, and we're not going to focus on these until the next time I teach, but look at Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, and this just continues to add to the thought we're talking about that the gifts are here, the people. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and that word there is service, for the work of service, for building up the body of Christ, and we'll pause there. What are the gifts being referred to here? There are those who fill the offices of teacher, apostle, prophet, and evangelist. They're people. Specifically, this list is speaking about leaders. It is not normal, guys, and this sounds self-serving, but I want to talk about our leadership, not just me. It is so normal in this society right now to simply hate leaders. Paul says we should be thankful for our leaders. I'm so thankful for the body of leaders at this church. They lay down their life constantly for no pay. I am the only pastor on staff. Ian is the only deacon on staff, and he's half-time. Everybody else in our leadership, besides the two staff people, Sarah and Elisa, they give of their time free of charge. They sit on the phone with you when you need them. They come to your house to take care of your kids. They bring you food. They love you. They open up their home to you. They set up church. They tear down church, just like many of the volunteers here do. They're gifts to you. They're gifts to you. Paul says these are people, they're gifts. Now, specifically here, it's people, but elsewhere, we'll talk about how it's talents and things that people bring. But today, I want you to see that Paul is saying that the gifts Christ has given to the church are people, one another. Why has he done this? Because when we work together in our roles, selflessly serving one another, it builds the body up in Christ and displays his miraculous power and nature to the world. Guys, imagine if I got thrown into a wood chipper. This is another good thing for pastors to say on Mother's Day. Imagine if I got thrown into a wood chipper. How possible would it be for me to go and serve None. You see why unity is important? No, you don't. If I got broken into a million pieces, would I be able to serve? No. Only in having all of my parts actively working together am I able to serve. This is Paul's point in using the body. Imagine if the finger were cut off. Imagine if the leg were cut off. Imagine if the head were cut off. The body wouldn't be able to serve. When we work together in our roles, selflessly serving one another, it builds the body up in Christ and displays his miraculous power and nature to the world. Now we'll delve into this in even more depth within the next few verses, but first look with me at another place that Paul discusses this idea. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. You guys are going to have fun on social media today. I know your church talked about moms and love. We talked about wood chippers. 
Romans 12, verse 1 through 8. Look at what Paul says. This is the point in Romans where he moves from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, right doctrine to right practice, verse 1 of chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, if we want to worship God, we present our bodies selflessly as sacrifice. Who do we sacrifice to? To God, but more so to his people, as you'll see in a second. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, guys, we're about to see what is the will of God for your life. How many of you wake up every morning going, God, what is your will for my life today? He's about to tell you right here, okay? For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Think rightly about yourself, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another." Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, almost across the board, the majority of commentators will say that this list and the other lists that are used are not to be all-inclusive. So we harm ourselves when we sit down and we go, okay, which one of these do I have? I don't really fit in there. What's he saying here, guys? What's the point? Know your gift and use it? No, he's saying, love one another. Your entire point on this planet is to serve each other. In so doing, who do you serve? Christ. How do I get closer to Jesus? Get closer to his church. How do I honor Jesus? Honor his church. How do I harm Jesus? Harm his church. See, the reason he gave us the incarnate body of Jesus in the church is so that we have something physical and tangible to work with when we honor and serve and love Jesus Christ. And so Paul tells us the proper response of a true Christian is that based upon Christ's sacrifice, we change our minds to his way of thinking and surrender our lives to be a sacrifice. And what is the first place he sees us doing that? In the midst of the body. He tells the church at Rome, and he's telling us today to use the gifts that we have been given to serve one another. And that word gift in the Greek, guess what the word is? It's charismata, gifts, or charisma, gift. See, when we call ourselves a charismatic church, what I want us to understand is that what we're saying is that we will serve one another. We are gifts to one another. That's what a charismatic church is. To take that and steal it and put it into this weird silo that says it's A charismatic church is one that acts in these super hyper-spiritual ways is against Scripture. It's not even what those words mean. The word charismatic has been hijacked, and I want to recover it. It comes from the word charisma because for those who consider themselves charismatic Christians, they will tell you it's about miraculous gifts, but it seems to me that to read Paul's words in that way is to miss the whole point. As we'll see in more detail, Paul's whole statement is not centered on the gifts used, but on the sacrifice made to serve each other. And a truly charismatic church is to be a church where each member of the body recognizes their importance, not over and above other members, but with other members of the body, 
serving one another so that Christ's body may act in concert together to show the surrounding world what the heart of God is. This heart of selfless service and sacrifice is what proves to the world that we have his Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Church, be honest with me. Is this a popular message to preach? I'm asking you to lay down your lives for the people that may end up harming you. But it's what we're commanded to do. So I may not be the most popular pastor, but at least I can go to bed at night knowing that I'm trying to teach you what the word says. While it's important to know who you are and how God has uniquely built you to take a place within the body, it's even more important that we all realize that it begins with simply loving those that we are closest to within the body. Who will the fingers spend the most time loving? Probably the hand and the arm. Who will the toes spend the most time loving? Those that they're closest to, the legs, the calf, the knee. So I will proactively tell you what your role is, Christian. Your role is knowing that we will spend more time discussing, or excuse me, your role is knowing that while we will spend more time discussing what individual gifts like, look like, your job is to simply love one another. Your role is to love and serve one another, to speak to one another in truth, to not give the enemy a foothold for division, to reconcile with one another immediately, to stay faithful to the commitment you've made to each other, to serve one another in the small things. Church, if you do these things, you will be building up the body of Christ in a powerful and miraculous way. And the choice is yours if you embrace this truth that Paul is calling us to and say, I want to be obedient to that. Or for you to cast it aside and say, nah, it would be much easier for me to be a consumer somewhere else. Your job as a Christian is to buy into the very good and acceptable and perfect will of God to serve one another. If you start there, we will be a truly charismatic church. This morning, I want to finish by celebrating how this works out practically and asking us just a few application questions to finish the day. And then the, the worship team will come up and help us sing to the Lord. First, I want to celebrate. A number of you, a small handful of you, took part in the foster parent appreciation dinner on Friday night. First thing I want to say is thank you so much for your selfless sacrifice. When you work together as the body of Christ, here is the response you get from the people that you serve. This is from Gwen Slippy, the foster parent recruitment and retention specialist. Here's what she says. I am so grateful for your kind and generous support of our agency, humbled to tears to walk in partnership with people who share such a passionate heart of service without needing anything in return. Your actions speak life. I write this and the tears fill my eyes because the strong partnership that has been built provides stability and strength to our agency and the impact is truly life-changing. Last night blessed my heart to see more staff in attendance than ever before, at least in the time I have been doing this event. You were serving us. We were able to serve our foster parents, And the email below is just one example of the impact. The words that stood out were, we are really leaving the event tonight with our tanks full. I honestly think this is how everyone felt, staff included. Your people were so gracious and worked their bums off. They did it with a smile and their gentle spirits created such a sense of peace. 
I personally felt a sense of confidence teaming up with all of you. Sticking with our Hawaiian theme of the evening, mahalo. Thank you with gratitude, admiration, praise, esteem, regard, and respect. It's pretty cool. Is that cool, church? Is that what we're called to? And it was because a group of people chose to lay down their life, some for almost the entire day, to serve in the name of Jesus Christ. Well done, church. This is how Christ is glorified. Working as the body of Christ, using our gifts of service to show Yahweh's heart. We need to celebrate service like this and continue to lay down our lives for one another and those in our community so that we might show Jesus' love. And so this morning, what I want to leave you with is I want to leave you with some application questions. I want us to ponder what Paul has shared with us and apply it to our own lives. Before we all run out and do our Mother's Day stuff, I want us to pause and realize that we are disciples being taught to follow and obey all that Jesus has commanded us. And I want us to ask these questions, not pass over this passage and say, well, that was great. Now we know the historical background. I want us to try and implement it. And so here are the questions I want you to ask. First is, what is my view of the church? And does my view align with Paul's? Because if not, what should happen? We should change our mind. What is my view of the church? And does my view align with Paul's? Third, does the church exist to serve me or for me to serve the church? It's so funny. People will ask, what time is your church service? You ever wonder why we call it that? And yet we as Christians, what do we do when we don't like a church? We say, well, I'm not feeling fed anymore. I'm not feeling connected. I'm not me, 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 me. Why is it called a church service, church? To serve one another. Does the church exist to serve me? or for me to serve the church. Here's a few more. I obviously want you to ponder this this week. (laughs) First, do I view the people that make up the church as gifts from Christ? See, we're even gifts from Christ when we enter into conflict because that conflict will allow us to reconcile and be obedient to Jesus in conflict resolution. And that will sanctify us and grow us as people. And secondly, along with that, do I treat them that way? Do I view the people that make up the church as gifts from Christ? And do I treat them that way? And lastly, very simply, how often do I engage in prayers of thanksgiving for them? How often do I engage in prayers of thanksgiving for them? You'll see this throughout all of Paul's letters. I give thanks for you, he's saying to the church he's writing to. Today we rejoice that Christ has given us the gift of grace to welcome us into relationship with him. And he's done this in spite of us. But he's also continued to heap gracious gifts upon us by giving us one another. The last thing I want to say to you this morning is this. I want you to ask yourself if you view yourself as a gift to this church. I find in my counseling work that most people don't that they view themselves as a burden, something's wrong with them. And so when they don't participate in the middle of the body, they think, well, the body's better off without me anyway. 
And I just want to correct that this morning. I want every single one of you to know here this morning that you are a gift, not only to me and our leadership, but to one another. And my heart sings when I see your faces. I rejoice in the fact that God has given me the gifts of each and every one of you. And I want to ask you, do you feel that way about one another? Because as we grow in that, we will be growing up into Jesus, into the truth of who he is. And we'll be able to model that for the world around us. And so as we step into this time of communion, now is the time to act on any conviction that the Lord has placed in your heart. Because singing together is a way of ministering to each other. It's a way of encouraging one another. Taking each other to the table of communion is a way of ministering to each other. Giving of your tithes and offerings is a way of ministering to each other. That's where we use money for benevolence and for roofs and for taking care of the church that you guys are all in. So all these ways, these are ways to give glory to the Lord and to worship him, but also to do it very practically to his body. If we love Jesus, we love his body. If we worship Jesus, we worship with his body. If we serve Jesus, who do we serve? We serve his body. So I hope that today the Lord has both encouraged you with the fact that, man, the church is a glorious thing. But also maybe I hope that he's convicted us a little bit to truly let this take place in our life in application.